to uh, bring a Palm Sunday message, but hopefully it's not uh, one you've heard before. I remember years ago when I was pastoring at Calvary, and you can go ahead and get it started by just putting that first slide up on the Palm Sunday, and then she'll know. She can just follow along and uh, as I move along. But um, every Easter, you hear Sunday, uh, a sermon on the resurrection. And I heard somebody one time uh, say, well, why do we always preach on the resurrection on Easter? People that only come to church on Christmas and Easter, they think there's only two messages that preachers ever preach. <laughs> and so I decided to shake up the crowd uh, one Sunday morning. And on Easter Sunday, I preached on hell. <laughs> and that wasn't what they were expecting to hear. I think the Lord directed my thoughts, but I've never had the nerve to try that one again. <laughs> but anyway, so we're going to take another look at Palm Sunday, and we'll have the verses up here. You can follow along in just a moment. But let me set the stage here, first of all. I, I'm going to ask you to awaken your sanctified imagination this morning. And I want you to imagine in your mind's eye that you're viewing that original Palm Sunday first one. And as I read along here in just a moment, um, there are some faces that are not mentioned in the crowd, but surely they were there. I'm thinking like um, Roman soldiers that were there to keep peace and order. Um, I'm thinking of the herd. Now they are mentioned there, and I'm mentioning this now because I want you to uh, watch for them as we move through this text in, in just a moment. Um, oh, there's the herd mentality today as well. These were the people that loved the spectacle. They had heard rumors of the um, supernatural things that Jesus had done in his ministry, and he's coming to town, and they didn't want to miss the spectacle. So they're there. Um, there are undoubtedly those there that witnessed some of the miracles of Jesus. Maybe there were a few there that were among those that were miraculously fed on the mountainside at the feeding of the 5,000. Or they had certainly, because word had spread far and wide, heard about blind eyes that were opened and even a dead man that was raised, all sorts of things. And they were there because of the well, this isn't a sanctified term, but because of the magic man was here in town. And they were curious what he was all about. And then there were some of the cultural elite that were there. And I, at first, as I was thinking about this, I thought it didn't fit. I'm thinking of the Pharisees. Because we have a cultural elite today, but most of those are far from godly people. The media, Hollywood, uh, the woke crowd. But they're the ones that are pushing the buttons and trying to pull the levers of an entire culture. That's who the Pharisees were in their own day with the religious bent. They were the best educated. They were the most influential people in Jewish society. They were the interpreters of the law. They were very uh, well-heeled and uh, well taken care of. 
There wasn't any food crisis for any of the Pharisees. And they wanted to keep control. And they were addicted to the power that they had. Now, I'm not saying that they were all devious, mean people. But they were the elite. And we have those today as well. There were the apostles that were in the crowd. They still didn't get it. They were still thinking that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans. In fact, one of the disciples was a zealot. He was a militant. And somehow, they thought that Jesus was going to liberate politically the Jewish people. There was a book written a number of years ago. Some of you might have heard it. It's called The Passover Plot. Anybody ever hear about that? And, the, and the, it's a fictitious book, but, but it, it's not all that unplausible. In that book, the author is trying to read the mind of what was going on inside the head of Judas Iscariot. And he speculated that maybe what Judas was really trying to do was to force the hand of Jesus so that he would come out as the militant Christ and overthrow the Romans. It didn't happen that way. And so there are all these faces in the crowd that are there. And I'm entitling the message this morning, Their God Was Too Small. I love a couple of, well, I liked all the songs, but there were a couple of them there. And we can go to that next slide now. You can, uh, when, when, when you hear a cue word, just uh, go to the next slide there and we'll, we'll get through this, I promise. Um, how great thou art, and, you know, amazing grace. It, it's not that those faces in the crowd were completely off the mark, but their understanding of the Messiah was too small to meet the broad scope of the moment in their lives. And we know that Jesus was disappointed at this fest, uh, spectacle, festivity that took place, because immediately after that Palm Sunday, or that triumphal entry, Jesus wept. He wept over the city of Jerusalem because they just didn't get it. And so, as we think of the cultural elite, the Pharisees, as we think of those that are just trying to follow the crowd and the mass, as we think of sincere believers, maybe one or two of you that are sitting here today, your God may just be too small. Because Jesus came, and this is just a stunning thought. How big is the universe? How many billion light years across is it? And light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. And the God of all of this entered into human flesh, took on a human face to come and procure the salvation 
of people on this planet in rebellion. And so, I want us to move along. There are those that were looking to Christ for all the wrong reasons. And I want us to look today at some of those, and we go on. Okay, oh, oh, I want to, good. See, she keeps me online here. I want to read this scripture first. So here we go. And I've kind of abridged these verses, but this is out of Luke's gospel. As Jesus approached the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you as you enter it, and you will find a colt tied there. Untie it and bring it here. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd, there they are again, the throng, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the tricks, no, all of the miracles that he had performed. In John's gospel, by the way, he always calls the miracles signs, signs. They're acts of God, but they are not an end in themselves. They are intended to divert or to point our attention to the real message and the fullness of salvation that God brings. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were in love with all of these great supernatural things that he had done. Some of the Pharisees, there they are, that cultural elite, you can see them in their robes with this I'm smarter than you are look on their face. And they are disapproving. Here he is, the object of everything they have been teaching and instructing the people to prepare for. But this Jesus was going to upset the apple cart of their preferred status in Jewish society. They wanted nothing to do with him. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You're upsetting the privileged status and the status quo that we are the guardians of. We're the ones that are directing the course of Jewish life and Jewish society. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you had only known on this day what would truly bring you peace. But now, it is hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now just take a moment and ruminate with me before we move on on what we've just read. Do any of those faces in the crowd remind you of something that resonates within your heart or something you observe?
Now let's look at for all the wrong reasons. And let's, uh, there's three of them I'm going to uh, highlight here this morning. Uh, that are wrong motives that people today have. Number one, he is not jackpot Jesus. Okay? Verily, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. It was real hunger, physical hungry, satisfied, but that was to point beyond the loaves of bread to the bread of life that he represented. And we see that today as well. I've thought for a long time that a nation gets... One of the courses I taught on college university level was um, political science and American government. And one of the questions I asked the students is, does a nation get the kind of government it deserves? And we would discuss that. And think about that in light of our society today. There are many within the body of Christ that are settling for jackpot Jesus. He's the one that's going to bring instant gratification and solve the problem of the moment that I'm facing now. And he might do that. He did feed the 5,000, didn't he? But that was not to be the end of the game. That was to be the point of entry. I'll tell you something. I don't, I don't watch a lot of religious programming. I'm all for it. I, I watch on Sunday mornings some while we're getting ready for church. And one of my uh, favorites, any, any of you here ever watched David Jeremiah? Uh, he's got a new book out, by the way. I just, just bought it and brought it home, I think, yesterday or the day before. It's um, the Book of Signs. And he's talking about the signs of the time in which we live. And I just kind of enjoy uh, his approach to the times in, in, in which we live. But one of the things that aggravates me, and I just turn off the TV, and I'm all for TBN and Daystar and what are the other ones that are there. But doggone it, almost every time I turn it on, there's some television preacher there wanting me to send him $1,000 of seed faith so I can line his pockets and he promises a payoff, a jackpot for me. Is anybody here ever, anybody swallow that nonsense? But you know what I'm saying? And maybe one of the reasons why we have a lot of problems in our country today is we have a lot of Christians, and I don't doubt that they're going to heaven, but their God's too small. And they're, and they're settling for the wrong and inferior reasons. Now, God can bless you financially. God can heal you physically, and he does those things. How many of you here have had a time when God has miraculously provided or answered a prayer for you? Can I see your hand? It happens. But that's to point to something deeper and beyond that. And so don't settle for just a jackpot Jesus. That's the payoff for the moment. 
You're like one of those onlookers on Palm Sunday, if, if, if that's the case. He's more than jackpot Jesus. Now, now, he's not a political cause either. Now, does God care about our politics? Of course he does. But I'm telling you, it's too easy. And there are those, I think, among the woke crowd today that are cynically using religion to try to give a cover for their sinister motives. But he's not MAGA Jesus either. Any political system that rises to the level of being a substitute for the real message that Jesus brings is off the mark. I saw something on television this week that just stunned me. Now I have to admit, for a while, I've been pretty sympathetic with Vladimir Putin. Not because I'm a communist, but because I read stories of his conversion to Orthodox Christianity. That he always wears a cross around his neck. And that one of the things he dislikes about the West is the moral moral decadence of the West. And for all those things, I could say amen. But when he starts bombing hospitals and killing innocent people and launching an unprovoked war, that has nothing to do with the faith that he professes. But that's not the thing that stopped me. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as sympathetic. I'm not sympathetic anymore. But what stunned me is one of the great churches or traditions of faith in Christendom is Eastern Orthodoxy. And the Russian Orthodox Church is the largest branch on that tree. The Orthodox Church actually traces its roots back to the Apostle Paul. It was the churches of the East, Greece, that he planted. And out of that, that great Eastern tradition developed. And the patriarchs of the Russian Orthodox Church, and it's even more ornate and and gold-decked and all the rest than the Catholic Church. It is absolutely stunning in the beauty and the pageantry that's there. And one of the reasons for that, by the way, this is just a little sidebar, is the Orthodox faith wants to create a worship experience that, 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 that speaks to all five of the senses. Sight and sound and smell and touch. I leave one of them out anyway. And you get that when you see it. And here he is, the pious patriarch with those Old Testament prophet-looking beards and this gold hat and the splendored robes coming out and speaking to the Russian people and saying, it was God's will that we invade the Ukraine. Pardon me, but his faith in his politics has gotten convoluted. And I don't think Jesus would respect that. And while I, I believe it's important, and I certainly have, have my political uh, leanings, and uh, I'm more red than blue, I'll tell you that. 
But I can't confuse that with the kingdom of God. I can support and stand behind those things that a political system endorses. But Jesus did this. As Christians, we do this. We are to be the conscience of every political system and call into question those things that are out of line and never confuse the two kingdoms. It's not a political cause. That's another wrong reason. Now, I'm not saying, and I'll move on quickly, that we abstain from being politically involved. I'm not saying that. But we're citizens, first of all, of the kingdom of heaven. And nothing can ever dissuade our allegiance from that kingdom in our life. The third wrong reason is this. It is not a health and or wealth guarantee. This just aggravates me to no end. I, I'm, I respect everybody who calls Jesus Lord. But this prosperity cult in our culture now is a heresy that only works in a first world country like America. If you are a Christian in Ukraine right now, you need a God who's bigger than that, don't you? God does bring prosperity. God has brought such tremendous blessing into our lives, Sheree and I. And every once in a while, we'll just say, we are just so blessed. And thank you, Lord. Because I will tell you, if we apply godly principles in our life, that's the way the world turns. That's the way it works. You're going to have better health if you don't smoke and drink and chew and hang around those that do. You will. But I've got a great friend that I don't think has ever touched tobacco in his life. And he's been battling lung cancer for the last 15 years. There are things that shine through in our life that happen in the midst of need and physical challenge. Here's an unlikely illustration. I've never been a big Tiger Woods fan. I don't really play golf, maybe once or twice a year, but somehow my wife and I will sit there and watch the Masters, okay? And I never really liked Tiger Woods because he seemed to be so pompous and arrogant. Now, he had his worst round he's ever had in the Masters yesterday. He goes into the final round today, seven over par. But I commented to Sheree, I said, something's changed about Tiger Woods. He's acknowledging the crowd where he used to just pompously walk by him. He's smiling. And he's taking his own blame. For not shooting a better round. And I, know, told, told, I watched as we were watching it yesterday. He was limping on the back nine. Now, now he's not even a Christian. As far as I know, he claims a Buddhist faith. 
Okay, so some of these things they cut across creed and that sort of thing, but he's a more humble man now. He's a more genuine person now because it hasn't all broken his way. And when hard times strike our life, it can make you or break you as a human being. Another thing about this prosperity cult, they can never quite explain why it didn't work for either Jesus or the Apostle Paul. Here's what Paul has to say about his life. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, I could give example after example of this, but I think you know what I'm saying right here. Instead of saying, why me? Or playing the blame game, or beating yourself over the head because you didn't have enough faith to blab it and grab it. Why don't you look at what the Lord may be wanting to do in your life to be a bigger God that transcends those circumstances and gives you a peace that passes understanding in the midst of the adversity that is there. Does that mean we don't ask God for breakthroughs? Does that mean that we don't ask God to perform miracles? No, of course we do. But Jesus is bigger than the trial of the moment that you're passing through. And ask God to show you in the midst of that. Now, we've all had circumstances that have been trying in our lives. And if you're like me, once you pass through it, you never want to go through that again. But if you've handled it in the right way, you wouldn't trade what you have learned and how you've grown through that for anything. So these are some of the wrong reasons. Now let's turn the corner. I've got five positive reasons to see Jesus in the right way. The first of the, these is he's the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Has anybody here besides me ever read anything or heard the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Does it mean anything to anybody here? Okay. He was a very famous Christian Russian dissident during the 1970s that was standing against the Soviet state. Uh, he was an outspoken critic of the, of the atheistic so Soviet government and for that he was thrown into the gulag for a number of years was let out. He wrote out another protest pamphlet entitled, Live Not By Lies. And for that he was expelled from the country and, and exported, deported to the West. But he was a conscience 
speaking against the atheistic lies of the Soviet Empire. And here's the essence of what he said. Truth is not a social construct. Truth is not something that you can invent and therefore make it a reality. But truth is something that comes from the heart and the mind of God. And if you build your life, or if a country builds its moral compass on the manufactured lies of the state, it will ultimately crash and burn. And let me give you some example, just one example here. Paul talks about those who were professing themselves to be wise became fools. Let me give you a wise fool attempt at truth today. How many of you think it is really hard to tell the difference between a boy or a girl or a man or a woman? Pretty basic, isn't it? Unless you are an intellectual today. It's much more complicated than that. You may be a boy on the outside, but a girl on the inside. Earth to idiot, earth to idiot, come in please. This is stupid. Okay? But there is a whole element of our society now that's trying to take a lie that goes against natural truth and create an alternate truth in its place. It's a lie. It may convince the populace of our country, but it's not going to end well. Because you can't invent truth. That's what Lucifer did, tried to do, by the way, when he was the second highest being in heaven besides God, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. He wanted to be the arbitrary of truth, of good, of evil himself. Has that worked out very well for him? What makes you think it would be different for us? The truth of Jesus speaks to every dimension of our life. Not long ago, I mentioned this to my wife on the way. I said, I might, I might put this in the message, Dan. I think I will. Um, what was it? No, I forgot. Here it is. <laughs> Come. Uh, oh, oh, here it is. Um, years ago, and this wasn't what I told her. This is something else, but this will work. Um, I had a professor, I, I happened to go to a, just a very well-known school, and we had some marquee professors at that school when I was in graduate school. And one of my professors, and I think he was my, maybe the smartest man I ever knew, you better be smart if your parents name you Diogenes. His name was Diogenes Allen. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He just had a brilliant mind. He also was a Presbyterian minister. 
But we took a class on how can we defend our faith, our Christian faith. And he asked us to write a paper of our own defense of the gospel. Now, here's some of the things I put in mind. One, if it's, if it's true, and we're speaking of the claims of Christianity, it has to be logically possible. As long as there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem, even though it cuts against conventional thought, you have to say it's logically possible Jesus resurrected from the dead. Two, it has to stand the test of time. I'm not arrogant enough or stupid enough to believe that here in the 21st century, Eureka, we finally found it. The truth that has escaped all of these people for all of these generations, for all of these eons of time. A third thing, is it equally accessible to you no matter how smart or how simple you may be. And a fourth thing, does it speak to every dimension of your life? And Jesus as the truth speaks to every dimension of our life. And that became one of the things in my own quest where I settled on my Christian faith. Now that was my heritage. My dad was an AG pastor, but I had to do my own pilgrimage to get there for myself. I dabbled in Buddhism for a while. I tried to be a hippie, but I could never quite convince myself. Uh, and on it went. And I kept coming back to Christian faith. It, it works. And it speaks to every area of our life. And Jesus speaks to every aspect of our being. We don't need the flavor of the month ideology. You know, there are just things that don't pass the smell test. And this is what I did uh, mention to Cherie earlier today. The new emphasis on follow the science. Now, I'm very scientific-minded, I believe in science, is a new form of nature worship. Where the force of nature becomes the absolute truth. This is what the worshipers of Molech and Asherah were condemned for. They worshipped nature. And that's very much a part of the secular rebellious mindset in our country today. We worship nature. If, it, if it's scientifically the case, well, let me just give you one illustration on how well this works out. In the COVID epidemic, if you follow the science, the question is, which science and which day of the week? Right? That's not against science. But truth and the word of God is something that cuts through all of those things and gives them the right perspective in our life. Let's go to the second uh, right reason that we have here. Haven of rest. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Once you are walking and living and applying the truth in your life, life is not nearly so hard. Uh, how many of you know who formerly Bruce Jenner, now Caitlyn Jenner is? Uh, he's kind of a curious blend of things when you listen to him, her, whatever it is, talk. But he said something very interesting recently. He's kind of a, of a conservative transgender person, which is just really odd, but anyway. But he said, did you know that the incidence of suicide among transgender people is a hundred times higher than it is with the rest of the population. Well, and that's not because of the pressures of society. They might try to say it is. But that's because they're trying to be somebody that cannot be because it's not grounded in truth. He's the haven of rest. Maybe you've got financial crises that you're facing in your life. And you worry about it. My wife and I discuss these things with inflation running away and here we are thinking we're set for the rest of life. And But when you know that the Lord's your provider, why worry? God's going to take care of you. And whatever the pressure point is in your life today, whatever it is, when we come to Christ, we're following the truth. We're applying his principles in our life. We're praying and exercising faith. He's the haven of rest and peace in the midst, in the midst of the storm. A third thing is he's the solution to sin. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Now we've done a little world traveling a few years ago. Cherie and I went to uh, uh, outside of Cancun and we took a trip to uh, Chichen Itza which is the old Mayan capital. And we saw the altar there where on an annual basis, they would take either a young maiden or a young man, and before the throngs there, they would slit their throat and cut their chest open and pull out their beating heart as a sacrifice to the gods for sin. There is something wrong at the root of our human nature. And until we address that, Things are not going to be right in our life. And Jesus knew on that Palm Sunday that it took more than just acknowledging him as Jesus, but it would take his death to atone for the sins of the world. Why his death? One, because only a human being, a man, can pay the price for human sin. Two, only God is great enough to atone for the sins of the entire planet. That's why we have the God-man, Jesus, who hung on the cross. 
And you're never going to get the infection or the plague of sin out of your heart unless you have applied the blood of Christ against that dark side of your nature. One of my favorite figures of history is Martin Luther. And he would always say some curious things. But one time he said, the first work of God's love within you is to teach you to hate yourself. Well, that doesn't sound very psychologically healthy, does it? But it's true. You've got to fall out of love with self and fall in love with Christ before you can be made into the new creature. My favorite philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, who always, a very controversial figure, but he wrote a always called himself a teacher in Christianity. He wrote a little book talking about this entitled Sickness Unto Death. How we've got to experience this sickness unto death in our own life, realizing we can't fix it ourselves. I can't do it. And then we can turn to Christ. And nothing short of the passion of the Christ, which, by the way, came out a number of years ago, is a horrible movie, but I think a necessary movie if you want to get a vivid description of the horror that Jesus experienced during Passion Week. It's the solution for sin. It's not more education. It's not a revolutionized governmental system. It's not a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. That's not adequate. That God is too small. We have to attack the root of that sin nature that is within us. And I'm telling you, you never get over it. You're always having to confess again to Christ because those old motives and that dark side of your nature does not die easily. But Christ is greater than that. The fourth thing is there is insight for living that comes through Christ. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Everything that really matters in your life is met in Christ. If they think you have to have it and it doesn't happen, God must not think it's necessary for you. Learning to live with a spirit of gratitude, a spirit of thanksgiving, a spirit of simplicity, a spirit of totality, fullness of life, whatever your status in life, is what you can have and experience, whatever your lot in life may be. There's a peace there that you can find in Christ. Every time I speak to a new congregation, I tell the story of my grandma Bohoffer, my mother's mother, just a saint among saints. Um, her husband died when she had four small kids. Uh, her, her mother, my great-grandmother, Grandma Olson, was bedridden. She fell off a bus in Fresno back in the early years of the 20th century. And Grandma Bohoffer, she got by. Um, she raised her kids, 
But she was looking forward to the day in which she could retire. And the kids would be out of the home and she could just be grandma to the grandkids. And we loved Grandma Bohoffer. I remember my sister and I, when we were driving from, uh, this would have been Marysville at the time, California, to Oakland where she lived. Uh, we'd be jumping, you didn't have seat belts in those days. We were jumping up and down on the back seat, almost to grandma's, almost to grandma's. Because when we got to grandma's, we knew that she would have a big chocolate cake sitting on top of the refrigerator for us. She was just great. But you know, she developed crippling rheumatoid arthritis. And her joints on her hands looked like golf balls. She was just racked with pain. She lived on bufferin. I don't even know if they still make bufferin, do they? I don't know. And then she was starting to lose her eyesight. And she had to go in for brain surgery and they shaved her head. And I can remember seeing the incision marks where they opened her skull all the way back here and off to a side and pulled out a section of her skull to try to remove the brain tumor that was there. Well, there was good news and there was bad news. The good news is they got it mostly. But there was part of it that was inoperable. They sewed her back up and said the bad news is you're going to go completely blind. Now this is in addition to the rheumatoid arthritis. And you're going to lose your mind. And so the last couple of years of Grandma Bohoffer's life, she lived with us. And her bedroom was right next to mine. She was in excruciating pain. But she'd call me in the bedroom. When, when she lost her eyesight completely, she couldn't read even the large print Bibles. And, and she would uh, ask me to read the Psalms. And she would say, you know, God is just so good. I mean, I choke up now. This is years later. So gracious in her suffering. And I would walk by the room and I would hear her singing, What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sin and grief to bear. Did God ever heal Grandma Bohoffer? No, he didn't. I guess you could say the ultimate healing. She died and went to heaven. And I've always been impressed how no matter what circumstance came in her life, she could rise above it. There was insight for living. Now my own theory is that all that she went through in this life was her schooling for her role and her place in eternal life in what God has for her. There is insight for living regardless of what the circumstances may be. Let's go to the last one. Living from the inside out. We're a very materialistic culture. And I like all the things that God's given to me too. We've got a swimming pool in our backyard and we had the grandkids come over yesterday and we had a great time and I'm just glad it's a heated pool. Okay? I enjoy those things. But I'm reminded that these aren't the necessary things in life. It's from the inside out. And... What God wants to do in each of our lives 
is to empower us and to renew us and fill us from the inside out. So just like Grandma Bohoffer, whatever comes your way, you're unshakable. You know, one little last illustration is going back to the early church. The early Christians were almost lining up to be martyrs for their faith. And one of my favorite stories, last story, promise, I'm not going to be one of those preachers that says, and in conclusion, five times before we are actually get there. But there's the story of Perpetua, 22 years old. She lived in North Africa during the years of the Roman Empire. And she would not forsake her faith. She still had a nursing baby. I'm not, I, don't know where, I don't know where Perpetua's husband was. He doesn't enter into the account that we read of her. Her father came and pled with her. Please, just renounce your faith so I can see, my, see you as I grow old and all that. She couldn't do it. And she had one last opportunity to renounce her faith, but she would not do it. A 22-year-old young mother. And she was taken out into the arena to be mauled by the lion. And lion came and struck her down and she got up and she re-wrapped herself because she was a very modest lady and fixed her hair and said, I'm about ready to meet my king and I can't be unpresentable when I meet him. Can you imagine that? And when the lions wouldn't attack her anymore, one of the Roman guards came up with a sword and she took the sword and slid it across her own throat. What kind of faith is that? You're living from the inside out. Now there's lots of troubling things happening around us. I, I sometimes wake at night concerned about our country, concerned about the things that are going on. I'm, I know it's affects many of you too. And I think it's very possible we're going to see worse days than we're seeing now before it gets better. I think that's very possible. That doesn't mean I'm resigned to it. Because there are times when God does some surprising things in our lives or in our world and that's what we're praying for and working for. In fact, there are signs that there is some um, uh, kickback from all of the nonsense that's being pushed down our throats today. But we don't know. Those elite powers in our country today are strong and they're insidious and they're determined and you know as well as I do, if they could shut down the church right now, they would. You know that. That may happen. I'm not saying it will. Thank God we belong to a church that believes in the rapture. And then the question is, is it a pre, mid, or post-tribulation rapture? Let's take a vote right now in case God is watching. How many would vote for a pre-tribulation rapture? Could I see your hand? See that, Lord? It's unanimous. But we just don't know these things for sure. But when we're living from the inside out, our faith is unshakable and unbreakable. 
And so I just want to ask us to take a moment and ask ourselves if our God is too small or if he's trying to expand the horizons of our mind and our heart to meet the moment we're experiencing now or which may come next. I'm going to close this way. Years ago, when I was back in school on the East Coast, there was an old Quaker meeting house. It was at the edge of a battlefield, of a, of a great battle during the Revolutionary War. This Quaker meeting house uh, was established in 1746. And I was uh, just visiting different churches. I'm going to go to the Quaker meeting house, this old historic one this day. It was very kind of a log square cabin. And I walked in, and, and uh, there are different rows, not many, but on different levels uh, going around this ground floor in the middle. And I'm a Pentecostal kid. That in those days, was used, uh, you, know, you came in listening to the, what sounded like the roller rink organ music that was playing when you came in to go to church and all of those things that we had and, and all that. And I came in and sat and I thought, well, it's getting started a little late here, but it's okay, I'm going to wait. And after about five or ten minutes, some old guy came wandering in, looked like a farmer, had a flannel shirt and jeans on and took a chair and just sat down on that flat floor there. And sat, and sat, and sat. Maybe five or ten minutes later, someone stood up and talked about what God had spoken to them this week. And for a half hour or more, maybe there were six, ten, twelve people that stood up and just shared what God was doing in their life. And afterwards, it got quiet again. He said, well, that, include, that concludes our service for today. And they were going to have a church dinner afterwards. And I thought, well, that is the weirdest service I've ever been in. Then I, then I did a little reading and research for the Quakers. When they gather together, the old traditional Quakers, they didn't have a preacher or a message or an order of worship. They just sat together quietly in faith until the Spirit stirred the heart. And you would stand and you would speak what you felt the Lord put on your heart. So here's how I'm closing the service today. We're Quakers. We're here today. And I want us just to wait quietly in the presence of the Lord. And I'm not going to drag this on for a long time. But there's something God is speaking to you. Maybe it was in the course of the message this morning. I hope somebody got something out of it. Maybe it's something that's been stirring in your heart this week. We are Pentecostals after all. And we've calmed down a lot since the early days. But we still believe that the Spirit of God can speak through any of us that are here. And so I'm just providing that opportunity. I'll wait for a minute or two. If um, nobody speaks, no condemnation. But I'm just going to ask that where you are, you just quietly stand or sit and speak up. You don't need, we don't need another message. I've already been too long. But maybe a thought or a word or a scripture. And let's just see if there's something the Lord might speak to us through you today.
So let's just reverently wait for a couple of minutes and just listen for the Spirit in our life.